for the sermon. He's in a combative mood today. That's good, because I'm in a combative mood every day. Are you still having fun? Good, I am. Okay, so, um, I don't know about you, but I had a really, I had a strong sense of satisfaction with the work we got, I got to do yesterday. I don't get to work with my hands very much. I don't get to, like, rake things and pull stuff out and feel stiff the next day. Um, and uh, there are certain kinds of work that I just like to do and I feel good about, and I like, I just like to get out of my office sometimes and just work, you know? Um, you know, we don't talk a lot about work in the church, do we? We don't talk very much about it. Uh, but in many ways, the Bible talks more about work than about going to church, doesn't it? Have you read it? It does. I mean, I don't know if you—have you ever had this argument with somebody about them wanting you to find a Bible verse that proves that they should go to church? Have you ever had that argument? There's not a lot of verses. You end up, you end up saying stuff like, well, there's this verse in Hebrews that says, don't forsake the assembling together, and that's the most regular place, and so you ought to go. Or you end up saying something like, well, you know, Jesus went to—every Sabbath he went to—you know, I mean, there's, you can make a good argument. And if somebody is asking that question, they're not asking the right question, but it's hard to tell them that. But th the point is, is that if, if you ask the question, well, should I work? Is work important? What is God, does God care about work? There's a whole lot more in the Bible about that. Which, strangely enough, I think just points to the relevance of the Bible. Um, we cannot not talk about Monday through Saturday. We cannot afford to think that God is not integrally interested in Monday through Saturday, and we cannot either afford to think that the only work God is interested in is the work of the proclamation of the gospel. God is extremely interested in the work of the proclamation of the gospel. Extremely interested in that work, and I talked about that last week. But he is also extremely interested in all of the work that happens in his creation that he's ordained. Work is going to make up the majority of the best hours of the best years of all of our lives. It is going to be the main contribution we make to society and to our neighbors. It is going to be a huge part of our functional identity in that it's going to dictate our roles and our duty. It's going to form us, and we spend most of our young lives being formed for it. Most of the time we didn't spend in an occupation, we spent spending most of our time being trained for occupations. <clears throat> now, I don't know if you know this. If I, I, I thought— that if, if, if I ask you the question, do you think that the, the age of, the mean age of retirement, the average age of retirement since 1970 has gone up or gone down? What, what would you think the answer is? Yeah, see, see, a lot of people would say up, right? You know, pension plans are going away. Social Security's getting thinner. There's not, I mean, it's probably going to be left to work longer, right? No, actually, no. No, they were planning on retiring. They are delaying retirement because they were hoping to retire the boomers at like 51, okay? And so there's a, there's a lot of those people who have to work longer because of certain economic things that have happened. However, in point of fact, the actual retirement age of men in America since 1970 has gone from 68 to 65. Now, it did dip down into 63, 62, or 63, 64 for a little bit, and it's back up to 65, but it it's gone down three years. We're, we're, we're still retiring earlier, and we're spending a lot of our time working. So from age about four to 65, we are either preparing for work or working the best hours of our day, the best years of our life. It is simply the largest piece of your life pie. Now, the reality also is, is that we all have very strong feelings about work. We constantly think about our work. Who's thinking about work right now? 
I am. <laughs> and a lot of our feelings about work are less than ideal feelings, aren't they? They're, uh, we're thankful for our job, but we don't feel really fulfilled by it. Like, we like a lot of things about our job, but there's a lot of stuff that's unfilling or annoying, things we have to constantly do, where we feel much— we, f- we feel like we'd be more fulfilled if our job wasn't so repetitive. Or we'd, we feel like we'd be more fulfilled if our job was a little more repetitive. You'd be surprised. Some of you feel like, oh my gosh, if I could just do the same thing fewer times, my life would be so much better. Listen, I have to write a brand new sermon every week. I do not feel sorry for you. Okay? There's others, there's others of us who have jobs where we have to be constantly pumping out new stuff. And it is, it feels, and here, here's why. Here's why. Since the fall, there has always been a pain, a pain and a degradation in work. Work has never been ideal. Um, some of us imagine, um, imagine that if we were in other professions, we'd be happier. I remember talking with a guy, a friend, Rob Jackson. He was a lawyer. And I said, you know, all pastors have what we call bread truck Monday jobs, jobs where if, if every Monday we want to quit, being a pastor. And so there's this job that we always think, you know, if I ever really did quit, I'd do that job, right? And for a while, it was like to be a fighter pilot or a lawyer for me. And so I said, Rob, you know, is it, is it fun being a lawyer? And he's like, not really. Not really. It's mostly just paperwork and angry people, you know? And, you know, I, he, I, you know, he really believed it, but he believed his work. It's good work, right? You'd be a lawyer and you could do really important work. But the fact is, is most jobs just aren't glamorous, even the glamorous jobs aren't glamorous most of the time, right? I don't preach most of the time. Most of the time, I'm doing stuff that is very repetitive and not intrinsically va va voom, right? And same thing with you, right? And all the moms nodded, right? <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe you're feeling um, that you're disappointed. You like your work, but disappointed at its income potential, right? You're like, oh, I wanted to do this, but why doesn't society value this more, Right? Paying baseball players, blah, 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 and they only pay me, right? Okay, well, that's called envy, all right? <laughs> I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying income—I'm not saying income stratification is right. I'm just saying that feeling is envy. That's all I'm saying. Or you might be torn, torn between the feeling of you're a stay-at-home mom. You feel like it's important for your kids. You really would like to be at work a lot of the time because it was fulfilling in different ways. Or there isn't enough time for all your roles. By the time you work here, and you work at home, and you work at your hobbies, and you work at trying to get some sleep, there's just not enough time to do everything right. And it's, it's, you're doing everything you're supposed to be doing. You know that, but there's not enough job time to do them all like they're supposed to be done. And so you're not doing as much work as you think you can do. You can imagine that your kids are going to, of course, blow up and how you're going to have, they're going to run off and elope with something. And, and who, you know, and the next, you never know, you're never going to go hunting again. Like it's the, or play golf or whatever, shop. I don't know, whatever your hobby is. I mean, it's how people feel. Isn't that how you feel? You know, and that's what happens when we, every, never mind. Now, and the reason that's, listen, the reason that's important, the reason why we got to, we spend most of our time working, that work creates very intense feelings. And let me, it's a, a lot of those feelings create some of our most intense temptations. A lot of the very desperate feeling temptations that we feel and that we act out have a lot of relationship to our lifestyle, which is hugely impacted by our work. So a lot of the ways in which we feel anxious and desperate and frustrated and tempted flow out of the emotional dynamics that come from the work decisions we've made and the way we live it out. And so it's very easy to be full of envy and resentment towards a spouse— Right? He gets, to, he gets to go to work. She gets to stay home. I'm working harder than her. She's work, he's not working as hard as me. Why can't he take the trash out? It's not like he built the plane. You know what I mean? Like, it's, you get this sort of, right, resentment, or you get sort of boss or employee. Listen, there's a lot of bosses that resent their employees. You might not think to be like, why the boss? Listen, because you get to go home at night. That's why they resent you. There's a lot of people who run businesses and they're trying to figure out how to survive in the economic climate and they, they resent their employees that make decent money and get to go home and forget about work. That is a luxury, right? People who run stuff are frustrated with those people. We're frustrated with people who work for the government. But guess who the government people are frustrated with? The, those other people. We envy each other. 
Or that kid that if you didn't have him or her, you really could make that leap to that other job you really want. But you can't, you feel like you can go back to school. You don't feel like you can, because you've got these three kids or whatever, and you can't make the career change. It's envy, and it will destroy you. And it's from your view of work, ultimately. Or sloth or idleness. It's just not worth it. Or anger. Or anger at God for the bad providence in your upbringing opportunities or breaks in relationship to your work. Or withdrawal or selfish entitlement. Because I work so hard and I'm so badly appreciated, I'm going to give myself this. Sinfully self-bless myself. I'm going to spend money we didn't budget. I'm going to do this. I'm going to go on that. I'm going to meet her there or him there. Or I'm going to, because of what work will ultimately do to you. And so here's, here's what I want to talk about. Here's how I think. Now you might think, okay, so I know where this is going, Nick. I've been, this is now the sixth week in gospel in life. I know where this is going. You're going to say, work is an idol. And so, you know, we got to get, but here's the thing. You can't, you can't get rid of the idol, can you? I mean, there's, there's a few things that we may have as idols, and we cannot go the simple route to get rid of them, can we? If your kids are an idol, you, 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 you can't get rid of your kids. Right? You know, oh, Abby's an idol, sweetie. We're going to have to ship her off to Zika's bar. You know what I mean? Like, you can't do that. And you can't do that in your marriage either. I really struggle with that. I struggle with my wife being a comfort idol to me and an approval idol to me. And I, listen, I can't, get, I can't go, oh, she's an idol. I'm going to have to get rid of her. You can't, you can't do that. Right? And guess what's tr- that's true about your work too, isn't it? The, the, you can't fix work idolatry by getting rid of work. You've got to fix how you think and feel and do and, 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 and deal with work, right? So just come up here and be like, dang it, we're work idolaters. We need to repent and believe the gospel. No, not instead of working, we need to believe the gospel into our work to fundamentally transform them the way we think and feel and integrate with it so that we can have restful, peaceful, meaningful God-driven, God-offered work. Okay, so here's how I want to manage the rest of our time together. A contrast, a definition, and then three gospel truths about work, okay? And I'm going to try to pick on everybody, just so it's fair. First, a contrast. Here's um, there's an essay by Dorothy Sayers called Why Work? It's actually a really good essay. There's a lot of macroeconomic opinions in it, and so I'm not going to read very much of it. Um, but basically in it, she talks about the distinction between a biblical doctrine of work and a modern doctrine of work. And essentially she defines a modern doctrine of work as the thing which you do um, for a living to make money so that you can do what you really want to do. So you can live where you really want to live, so you can you send your kids to school you really want them to go to, so you can buy the car in the year that you really wanted to buy it, so that you can go on the vacation you really want to go on, so you can have the retirement that you really wanted in the, at the age you really wanted it. That's what we're doing. You have a lifestyle that you've pictured, and you had to get an occupation that will achieve that lifestyle, and that's the modern doctrine of work. That's basically how we think about it. As opposed to what you might just call the biblical doctrine of work, and that is the use of our creative energy to produce intrinsically worst, worthwhile ends in the service of others or in the service of society. Um, let, let, me, let, me just, let me just pick on our—well, our, um, let me just pick on everybody, really, for this one. Um, you see, for some of us, the work, it's a real-time thing. We want to live a certain lifestyle now. But for some of us, it really is—it really is—and here's, here's the idol for a lot of us, and we have to talk about this is the retirement idol. I have to talk about this. Um, there's a great um, little pamphlet by John Piper called Rethinking Retirement. I'd really encourage everybody to read that, um, but especially those who are approaching retirement or who are retired. Um, he says this at one portion of that, and I think it's helpful because I'm not saying retirement is bad. I'm just saying there's a kind of retirement that we want that is not particularly gospel-centered. He says this, the reti- retirement— is the world's substitute for heaven. Since the world does not believe that there will be a heaven beyond the grave, the mindset of our peers is that we must reward ourselves now in this life for the long years of our labor. It secretly presumes that all the rest 
and joy after death promised is an irrelevant consideration. When you don't believe in heaven to come, and you might also say in hell to come, then you are not content in to glory in Christ, in the glory of Christ now, and you will seek the kind of retirement the world seeks. Famous missionary um, scholar and leader Ralph Winter once said, most men don't die of old age. They die of retirement. Now listen, it's one thing to retire from a position, right? You retire from a position. I have this job. I have this position. I retire from this position. It's another thing to retire from work to idleness. The Bible says nothing about retiring from positions. You can retire from a position. That's fine. You can, you can retire into a retirement, but the Bible says nothing about its ever being done with being occupied for the Creator and the Savior. It says nothing about our work ending so that we can have a life of idleness and refreshment and self-pleasing that is meant to be this pale substitute for the one thing that he has created to be that eternal pleasure, which will include work. Because work can itself be a pleasure when redeemed rightly. Okay, getting a little ahead of myself. Dorothy Sayers talks about this, this difference this way between these two. She says, she says, well, okay, this is Tim Keller paraphrasing the content of Dorothy Sayers. Okay, I just, this is easier. I think I have this on there. She says, what is happening is that nobody works today for the sake of the thing they do. That's really critical. It's really critical. Nobody works today. Now, of course, it's overstated. Works today for the sake of the thing they do. The result the results of the work is, the on, is only a byproduct of the real aim. Their real aim in work is money or status. So doctors will not practice medicine primarily to relieve suffering, but to make a living. The patient is something that happens along the way. Lawyers will not do law out of a passion for justice, but because it allows them to make a living. Now, she's not saying that's how all doctors act. Or all, uh, what she's saying is once you get this modern view of work in your head, then the work itself becomes just something that happens along the way. It's not the thing you're doing. You see, it's meant that the lifestyle your work produces is the byproduct, and the work is the thing itself. Whether that's changing a diaper, or sewing, or sweeping a street, or doing high-level algorithms, or doing genetic research. The, the thing itself is the focus. The lifestyle, and the, the, whatever money, or status, or whatever, is the byproduct of it. We get those confused. Why? Because we're idolaters, and because we're sinners, Right? And what she says is modern life has added dramatically to that, this, and we've—many of us have given ourselves over to it, and so we live in a world in which that inversion is the, is the norm, not the exception. And you can see that in people's work ethic, and in people's occupation choices, and in how we do lots of things in relationship to work. Those two things have been inverted. The patient is medicine. The client is law. Justice is law. The salary is something that happens along the way. The student is teaching. The salary happens along the way. The status, the retirement, the whatever. Right? The people, they are pastoring, not that they—whatever. The thing itself, right? That's, it's, if, you, if you lose that, you can't ever experience work as rest. You can't ever—and you'll never have the feeling, I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. The most peaceful feeling for a truly regenerate believer— is the feeling, right now, I am exactly where I'm supposed to be, doing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing for the glory of God, for the good of others, and for the right use of myself. That is the feeling that brings the echoing peace and contentment that can have you in a gulag or on a yacht and feeling ultimately very similar. So a definition would be something like this. Would be the use of our creative energy to produce good ends in the service of others. So it's, there's three parts. Using our creative energy for good ends in the service of others. Now, let me, get, let me give a, um, a picture definition, okay? There's two pictures given in the Bible. In the first couple of chapters, work starts out real early in the Bible. So in Genesis 1— it basically says that 
there was, the earth was, remember earth was formless and void? It means chaotic and empty. So Genesis 1 doesn't pick up just with, boom, everything. It says God created everything, and then it picks up with what? Formless and empty, not at rest, not ordered. And then it says, now here's what God did. Day one, day two, day three, day four. It works through those days. Here's how God brought order out of chaos. Here's how God subdued and ordered and began to work the universe. And then what does he do? He makes people, and then what does he tell them to do? Inhabit it and what? Subdue it. The idea there being bring order to it, make it creative, care for it. It's not meant to be an imperialistic kind of like, you know, destroy it. There's nothing in the Bible that says we should destroy things, right? It's, we should care for things, right? And so to say to subdue the earth means to continue the process of bringing order that God started. So God brings order out of chaos. He creates human beings, and what he says, go bring order out of chaos. You see the relationship there? Then you get to chapter 2, then what happens? God plants the earth, he waters it, he, and then what does he do? He plants a garden, right? And then what does he do? He makes a man and a woman, and what does he, what does he do? He says, garden. So God plants a garden. God's a gardener. He brings life out of no life. He cultivates things into order and beauty. And then he says to the humans, what does he say? Now this is your work. Now you do it. So you see, all of work, all of the work that we're doing is, is not making money. Hopefully we'll make a, hope you make a pile of money, okay? As long as it doesn't destroy you. Um, but <clears throat> all you're doing, all, all every work is, and once you see work like this, you can see all work is valuable. It's important. All work is bringing order out of chaos and gardening. So that's what we're all doing. <clears throat> we're using the creative energy God gave us. God uses his creative energy. God gave us some creative energy. We use that creative energy to produce good ends in the service of others. It's exactly what God did, and then he told us to do it. Okay, so three gospel truths about this. The first is— that we should diligently use our creative energy. You have it. God gave you creative energy to do stuff, to bring order out of chaos, to garden, to bring life. Yeah, and you need to use it. We need to use it. We are, we are meant to be a working species. We, in, in, the, in theology, we refer to work as a pre-fall ordinance. What that means is that things got screwed up after the fall. And so, you know, it's kind of like when your kids, you, you walk up on your kids and they're beating each other to death and you say, how did this happen? And what you're trying to do is you're trying to get back to the first thing that somebody did when things weren't out of whack. That's what you're, because you're trying to figure out who to, who to kick, right? And so you got to figure out who did it. So you, you, you know, once one thing happened, everything went buck nuts and you can't really sort that out, right? But if you can get before things went crazy and figure out who poked who in the eye first— then you can be like, oh, well, that's your fault. You poked him first. What do you think is going to happen? You think he's going to like, oh, thanks for poking me. <laughs> right? What you're, see what you're doing? You're trying to get to before the lapse. You're trying to get before society broke down with your kids. And you're trying to say, how should things have been then? What, what, what was things happening right? right? Th same thing Christian theology. You see, before the lapse, before the fall, before sin wrecked things. God put in a whole bunch of things in after that just to kind of clean things up. It's not perfect, and it's not the way it's going to be in heaven. It's just during the after fall time. But the stuff that comes before the fall, gender, the complementary nature of men and women with each other, family union, the call to be procreative and to raise children and to love them with it, to work to subdue, the, to bring order out of chaos in, a, in, a, in, a, in the world that God has put us in. All of that is pre-fall. All of that is the way it was supposed to be. It wasn't invented because we sinned. It was given before we sinned. And now God is in the process of redeeming it, even while it's under his own curse. You see? And so because it's that, it's inherently good. God intended us to be workers, and it's pretty likely in heaven we will be workers. Now, pastors and doctors are going to have to go through job retraining, but a lot of people, you know, are go it's going to be fun. You know, I think my brother's looking forward to, you know, a city that's 1,400 miles wide. You know, it's just going to be fun for engineers, you know. 
Um, you see, because if, if I just say, you know, be a good Christian and work, that's not, see, that's not the gospel, is it? You know what? You, mar- you married her, you got to provide for that family, you go out and get a job. Now, that's true, right? That's true. But that's, that's not, no, see, here, here's what you have to see. God is a worker. And you're made in his image. God is a worker. In fact, when they told Jesus, in John's gospel, they told Jesus he couldn't heal on the Sabbath day. You remember what he told them? That's what he said. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews, in, in, in John's gospel, Jews refers to the Jewish leaders, not the whole race forever. It's not meant to make us anti-Semitic. He says, they started, so these Jewish leaders started to persecute Jesus. And what did he say? Jesus said to them, my father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. You see what he's saying? He's saying, my father's a worker. I'm a worker. You see, there's some people who would say, well, God worked on the six days of creation, the seventh day, which lasts until now. God's at rest. Right? No, he's not at, Jesus like, he's not at rest. He's working. My, my father is a worker. He's the one doing the work. He's the one redeeming things. He's acting in the world, and I am his son. I am like him. I am in his image. I'm a worker too. And you are his adopted sons and daughters in the gospel. You are to be remade like him. And one of the ways we are remade like him is we're workers. We, we go into the world and we want to bring order out of chaos. We want to garden. We want to cultivate. We want it to be beautiful. It bothers us when there's weeds everywhere choking out life. It, it, it bothers us. It should. And we should love to garden the world. And so therefore, the counterpoint is, right? Oh, and, then, and, then, and then the passage I read this morning, right? It's, it's not Jesus, God going, you need to work. It's God saying, no, no, no. I made you into a hammer. All you got to do is pound. You see, it says, we are God's workmanship. God has exerted his gracious work on us in Christ. He's shaped you for something. He's made you into a tool in his hand. And now all you got to do, if you're a screwdriver, all you got to do is turn. If you're a hammer, all you got to do is pound. You are already the result of his work. And now when you work, you apply God's work. So work. The opposite of that is the Bible's condemnation of idleness. We were made for work. We were not made for idleness. In 1 Thessalonians, it says, um, this is, um, in 5.14, it says, We urge you, brothers, to warn those who are idle. In, in 2 Thessalonians 3, 6-9, it says this, In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers, keep away from every brother who is idle and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor do we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow. You see what they're saying? In the Greco-Roman world, if you were a teacher, you didn't toil. You didn't labor. You're above that. I mean, one of, the, one of the pagan philosophers says, to work is better than to be in poverty. Because that was not obvious. Labor was fr- just frowned upon. And what Paul said is, when we came to Thessalonica, we had every right to just be speakers. We had every right to be speakers. So we are. We have every right to make a living from that. But you weren't Christians yet, and you didn't understand that. And we didn't want you to think that this was about getting a following and, and being a rock star. So, so we got a bunch of cloth, and we made tents for people, and we sold them. We started a business, and we worked—whenever we weren't preaching, we were sewing till our hands bled. To show you there is nothing undignified about preaching the gospel— And there's nothing undignified about working hard with your hands. We want you to know that. We don't want you to be idle. Now, it's important to make two observations here. One is, idleness and unemployment are not the same thing. Unemployment is when somebody wants work and can't get any work. Okay? Someone's, he's will, they're willing to do anything. There's nothing available. Now you can get the whole issue of whether a job is, oh, that's a whole thing. 
Idleness is when there is something to put your hand to and you just don't. You just don't care to. And you might just be doing nothing or you just might be amusing yourself so that you don't know that there's any work to put your hand to. Now, that leads us to the second observation, that is, is that idleness is not the same thing as rest. God built a rest cycle, even a frivolity cycle, into good life. Remember? How many parties were the Jewish people commanded to have every year? Seven or eight, right? They were commanded. They were supposed to be a week long. You need to have seven week-long parties every year. Now, that is not a God that does not know how to have fun. Okay? Right? I mean, first miracle of Jesus, wine at a wedding, right? I mean, come on. He knows how to have fun, but the, the, the rhythm of working hard and then resting well and laughing and then putting our hand to something, that rhythm, because of the worth of the work, because if it's a good thing, because we're cultivating, because we're bringing order out of chaos, that's built into the Christian life. And so unemployment and rest are not idleness. You've got to know what idleness is. But when it's time to work, it's time to work. We weren't created to be idle because God is a worker and Jesus is a worker who creates and develops and brings order. His redeemed ones are workers who create order and repair out of the deepest part and the deepest passions of our character. Okay, let's move on. Two, to produce good ends to produce good ends. The question is, that you can ask yourself about work is, does our work produce anything for the common good or are we detracting from it? Does our work help other people? Does it make a contribution to society? Does it, does it, does it increase people's wealth or well-being? For what we are extracting from the community for our income or benefits, are we putting into the community in keeping with that. Now see, it's, that's a really important thing about because once you start thinking that way, it's much more likely you'll think that you're, pay, you're paid too much. Frankly. Um, if you think the other way, you'll always think you're paid too little. You always think that. No matter how much you're paid. Now that doesn't mean some people aren't paid too little. I'm not getting into that right now. But it is, is to say that your attitude makes a huge difference as to how you feel about the nature of productivity and what you're offering other people. You, you want to ask the question, does it create wealth or well-being? Listen, younger people, people in school, or people who are in a place where you might think about changing careers or whatever, you need to think about this hard. Don't just think about what you can make a lot of money at. Don't just think about what you can get, how you can get a certain kind of car. Think about what am I going to put my hand to for the best years, the best hours, the best preparation of my whole life? Is it going to make a contribution? Now, it, there's two, two more things to think about in relationship to this, okay? Um, thinking contribution is important. Think contribution. What contribution? The second is you've got to think broadly enough, okay? Because if you don't think broadly enough, you'll think that being a social worker is the only job you can do. And that's not true. Listen, if nobody cleans your house, eventually you're going to die. Right? Right? If nobody cleans your house and you live in your house, eventually you're going to die. Now, um, a lot of us clean our own houses, but somebody's got to clean your house. So cleaning your house, doing your dishes, vacuuming, dusting, all that stuff is necessary for life. It's part of cultivating the garden. It's part of bringing order out of the chaos that you and your kids create, right? And it has to be done. It's necessary for life. And so therefore, whoever cleans is making a necessary contribution to whoever lives there. Now you may be making that contribution to yourself, or maybe not. I don't know. But you should thank whoever's making that contribution. Probably should go tell the kids that too. The, but see, see, the point is, once you start thinking more broadly, you can understand how we make contributions to one another in other ways than the most obvious. Um, for example, if um, um, Adam's parents are here, they're our guests, and they came from California. Now, it used to take 
a while to get here from California. You know, back in the day, it, you know, it was called the Oregon Trail, and it would take months, and you could end up eating a family member somewhere in Colorado. <laughs> but you could get there if you, you know, tried and stuff. Uh, but they were able to get here in a day, right? Because they got on this thing called an airplane. They flew in a seat in the air, right? Across the country, and then they just rented a car that was already there for them. And they paid for it through a banking system that could verify in less than a second whether they had enough money to pay for it. And they filled out the documents that have been worked over years and years and years to make sure they cover all the right things for all the possible things that could happen so that everybody's interests are taken care of. And then they went, and guess what was right nearby? A fuel station where they could get liquid from the earth that had been refined and refined and refined, and they could just pick up a pump and put it in their car and fill it up and drive hundreds of miles on roads that someone built that are overtaxed in Chicago. <laughs> right? To a house that somebody had built to sleep in a bed that somebody made that, to eat food that came from all over the world. You see, when you start to think broadly enough, you can, you can realize that most of the work most of us do really does contribute to others. The question is, do you do it that way? There was a—I heard a, on an economics podcast I listened to, they were talking about um, an MIT student who was in the robotics division and decided um, to, to do an experiment on modern globalization. He decided to build a toaster all by himself. Not to get any parts from anybody, but to just get raw materials, raw plastics, raw metals, and to build a toaster that you can get for 15 bucks, right? By himself. Because he's an MIT robotics student, right? I mean, surely this young man can build a toaster, right? A year later, he didn't have a working toaster. A year later. You see, we take for granted the sophistication of the work people do to provide things for us. You know that when you eat a Lay's potato chip, it only has three ingredients. A human never touched that potato from when it came out of the train. The, uh, the salt was sprayed on it when it was flying in midair at 67 miles an hour over two conveyor belts. Like, you have no—listen, you have no idea how you got the shirt you're wearing, the earrings you have, the car you—I mean, you, we have no idea the sophistication and thought and labor and evolution and process by which we get everything that we get. We couldn't, you, we couldn't do any of this if people all over the world weren't co cooperating and laboring and doing work and moving resources around and doing stuff so that you, we could have all kinds of things. Famine is rare. It, it, used, to, it used to not matter how rich you were. You could be a king. You could starve to death. Now it's where people are poor. And it's because we don't give. Or because there's corruption, but it's not because we can't stop it. Because when one place has famine, another place has grown more than enough. And if they move around, it works. It's amazing. And it's corrupt. But when you think broadly enough, you realize that there are thousands of forms of labor. There are thousands of forms of employment. There are thousands of things that you can do for good ends, for the good of others. And when you think charitably enough, you will realize that even the occupations you probably hate, it's probably partly out of ignorance and not thinking through how they're necessary. Like most people hate futures markets. Right? Those people are just parasites, right? Betting on stuff that hasn't even happened. It makes it so that farming can work. It stabilizes the price so farmers can bet on it and so they can plant properly, knowing they'll actually get something for what they grow. Because guess who loses when the price of corn plummets like it did last month? The futures people who bought up all those futures prices. So the farmers can get more than they would have gotten if there wasn't all this fluctuation. Now, there are, other, there are other financial things that are parasitic. And if you are going into those kinds of things, you need to know what rent-seeking is— 
You need to understand that economic concept, and you need to figure out how to do that kind of labor in a way that is not rent-seeking, because rent-seeking is to be a parasite. And I don't believe it's the kind of work that God wants to do because it's theft. Everybody knows selling drugs and being a hooker isn't Christian, okay? But there are other ways of doing work, and probably some forms of occupation, that if we thought in terms of contribution— broadly, we still would recognize we probably should put our hands to something else. Let's look at that. Is everybody mad yet? Let's look at the last thing. Before that, one of the things I'm going to take out of this second one here is, is, therefore God dignifies. Did you get that from this? God dignifies all kinds of work, right? The guy who takes your garbage, I mean, have you ever thought through what happened if the guy who takes your garbage never came again? What would you do? What would you do? You'd just be like, so what, what do I do with this stuff? The magic, the magic emptying can doesn't empty anymore? All right. So, so once you recognize that, you realize there's all kinds of work that God dignifies. Why? Why? Because we need all kinds of work. Why? Because that's what love is. People need to be loved in all kinds of— people need all kinds of contributions to their life. And therefore, we need all kinds of work because we need all kinds of contributions. I mean, there was so therefore, we need all kinds of people making those contributions. And so the third bit is to work to serve others, right? The use of your creative energy to create a real good end. Why? Because of the good of the end itself. And see, you come third. Who's really fourth? I mean, right? You're fourth. We think we're first. Why do we work? For the glory of God, right? For some good end that's intrinsically good in and of itself that we offer for the good of others that we do for our own employment and benefit as well. You see, you're, you're fourth. Okay. I think there's three motivations. If once we realize we're doing some good thing for the service of others, there's three motivations we can get that'll help us with our work. Hopefully this will help you Monday morning or right now or whatever. Okay, there's, once we realize those things, there's three motivations. The first is that you can think about your job differently um, and maybe do it a little differently. People, if, listen, if you're doing your job to get stuff from people, they know it. They know it. If your patients are just another blob to you, but you love making your nurse or doctor salary or whatever, they, they can sense that from you. If you're talking to a customer and you're just, all, you're, all you're trying to do is to get a sale, they are nothing but a wallet to you. They know that. They know that. Even if you're selling a woman a frying pan, she can feel whether or not you want her over-easy eggs to be perfect or whether you want her to spend $79.99 instead of $69.99. They know it because it's the difference between dignity and indignity. They know when they're buying a car from you whether you want to help them figure out the best car for their family and the right amenities they will actually want or whether you are just trying to get the biggest commission you can and convince them that their manhood or their, or their wifely duty or whatever is somehow lodged into how, how much they will leverage and finance themselves. They know that. But if you think about your work as more intrinsically about doing the thing itself— you will engage differently. They will sense that. And it fundamentally changes the exchange process and the work process. You'll be happier. They'll be happier. You'll have better exchanges. You'll enjoy your life more if you'll do your work for the sake of the work itself. And listen, if you realize that God has made you through his own workmanship for your work, you can do that. Which brings me to the, the second one there. That it'll make you able to work an unideal job, either permanently or working an unideal job until you can find a better one. I bet there's a number of people in this room working unideal jobs. Probably because most jobs are unideal jobs. Um, I mean, who is actually doing 
what they dreamed they'd be doing when they were a kid, and that job is what they thought it was. Anybody? This is participatory. One. Really? All right. A couple. A couple. Two. Three, four, maybe. Right? Very few people. Either you're not doing it, or it's something like you thought it was. <laughs> or, or what you thought it was is only 20% or 40% of what— Like pastoring, it's like 23% of what I wanted to do. Right? That's probably true for most of your jobs too, right? But if you can see that, that all that other stuff has intrinsic value before God, that you're God's workmanship for that thing, it has value for, for the good of others, you can do it. And you can enjoy doing it. When I was— um. When I was in seminary, I was a host at Bob Shin's Crab House. It, then it was the third largest grossing um, independent restaurant in the United States. That, that doesn't mean that we had the most people vomit um, a year, but it, the most money. And um, on a Saturday night, um, between two and 4,000 people would eat at this restaurant. The host team was nine people. And we had to go through military basic training just to work there. And I'm just kidding. That's not true. But um, they would— uh, one of the, uh, the point person would actually work the door. And there were times where I had to lock the doors with some people in a party in the, in the building, some people outside the building, because we were over our maximum occupancy and everywhere in the building. And you have not lived until you have had a, uh, a Chicago executive swearing at you, saying, Gee, this and that, that he's going to kill you through a pane of glass when you were told to lock the door by your manager. It's just, you, you just haven't been living yet. And then I have to open the door and let him in. <laughs> but you know what? That was what I was doing then. I needed to get a job. I needed to support my family. I needed to pay for my schooling. I needed to— And, and my friend says—my friend who's already working there, he says, it's a great job. There's 300 employees you can share the gospel with. It's work— it's a good restaurant. You get to do things with excellence. And so, I, and you know what? Here's, here's what I knew. Most of the hosts couldn't take the front door. They couldn't handle it. It was fun for me. It was, it was fun because I was, was going to be abused. And I was going to be abused for the glory of God. Somebody had to, somebody had to figure out how to, how to herd 4,000 people in an orderly way so that they could all eat and have a good time and either impress their spouse or boss or lover or whatever and to, to buy some food and to enjoy it. And we had something we were doing and it had to be done and somebody was going to have to be point guy. We didn't know a better way to do it and I got to be that person. And so I said, how do you hand out oil-stained menus to the glory of God? How do you do it? How do you tell somebody— to calm down and go get a picture of Mai Tais to the glory of God. How, how do you do that? And when you figure that out, you figure out how to live as God's workman, as God's worksmanship to bring order out of chaos, to cultivate the garden, to use your creative energy for some good end in the service of others in very unideal circumstances. Very unideal circumstances. Because you'll see your work different. You'll see what you are different. You'll see who you're serving differently. You'll see the nature of what you're doing differently. And the more unideal it is in a certain way, the more you glorify God through the exertion of your character. So there's a way in which you have a greater opportunity to glorify God in unideal work. And listen, you've got to remember um, that once you realize that too, you realize that God— God demonstrates his dignity because God is a laborer. I mean, every, every major thing that happens in the Bible, it's God's with his hands in the dirt. Creation, redemption, rest, he's building stuff. He's making things. He's remaking stuff. He works with his hands, not just his mind. Um, the last one is you can enjoy your job more, and it'll make you a better worker. In the meantime, and I, I think I've said enough about that, right? Hopefully you can— And, and let me say one more thing about this is that once you realize that your work is for the service of others, and, and some, this is going to make some of you cynical, all right, listen, I have, this, is, this is part of my job, okay? I have to f flesh out these implications, so I'm just—don't don't be made cynical by this. Listen, once you realize that your work is for the service of others, you realize that's true both of your work and your income that it provides. You, you realize that you don't just work for the service of others, but the income your work produces is for the service of others. You realize that too.
first for your, the family you're providing for, or whoever you have to provide for in your immediate family, but then also for the world you're helping to bring order out of chaos and that you're helping to garden. And so it should make you a generous person, and you should be glad to give away your hard-earned dollars. You can't wait to give away your hard-earned dollars. Because they they, the work was its own good. You see, if you believe you're working to get money, you're not going to give away your money. You, you traded in your life for your money. You're not going to give away your money. That's because you're an idolater. If you realize that the work was its own thing, it was its own thing. You got to do the work. It provided an income. You get to serve others with the income as well as the work. You'll be generous. You'll be generous. You'll realize that not only the work, but also the income it provides is for the service of others. Here's my verse. Ephesians 4.20, it says, He who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful, right, for the good of others, with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Friends, what, what could be better than to live the next however many years of your life, not for the profit or the appeasement or the position you could get, but if you lived the rest of your life in good work of various kinds, serving others, using your creative energy for some real good, and if you did it to please God, just to please God, not to appease God, if you've tried to live to please God and it doesn't work, it's probably because you're really trying to appease God. But if you realize that in Christ, he already sets his pleasure on you, that he's, you're, he's easy to please when you're in Christ, when he's already made you his workmanship, he's already foreordained work for you. All you got to do is put your hand to it. If you just walk, the path will come up under your feet. What is more fun than being pleased by giving pleasure to the great one? who is a worker and has made you a worker. I don't know of anything. Father, help us to um, be the sort of people that embrace our work, that, that embrace that we were made for it, embrace that you, you serve others through us in it that we have a great dignity in all kinds of work. I pray people would be encouraged by this and that we'd be strengthened by it and it would change the way we see what we do, what we do and how we do and what manner of attitude we do it. And I pray that you'd help us to be a people at peace, enjoying living to please you. I pray in Christ's name. Why don't you rise for the benediction? Let's pray. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious and lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may he make you a worker as he is a worker who rests and is not idle. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.